This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to Darts and Letters on New Books Network. I'm Jay, I'm the lead producer for the show. If you've been listening this week, then you'll know we're a show about the politics of ideas, and that our theme for the week is Ideas in Strange Places. This is the first episode of Darts and Letters I hosted, and I'm a huge sci-fi geek. If you are too, then you won't be surprised to hear me say that it's a genre that's built on political ideas. Sci-fi is simulated philosophy, and you're about to hear me bang on about that for a while. I'll also interview authors about post-scarcity, aka fully automated luxury communism, about Afrofuturism, and then we'll round it off with a feminist history of science fiction. We're revisiting some of our favorites from the catalog until we launch the new season of Darts and Letters on September 18th, so the original broadcast date of this, well, the star date at the top of the show is actually accurate. Gordon Katic, engage. Editor's Log, Stardate 99040.01. Lead producer Jay Coburn says we should make an episode about science fiction. He tells me it's one of the foremost vehicles for radical thought. I'm not so sure, and I don't really know anything about science fiction, so I'm relinquishing command and passing the captain's microphone. We'll see if this is a good idea. From Sighted Media... This is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. Darts and Letters is a show about strange new ideas, about exploring new ways of life and civilization, about boldly going where no podcast has gone before. Science fiction is my favourite. You can kind of do anything with it, and for that reason, it has this long history as one of the most important vehicles for exploring radical, progressive ideas. Science fiction really is all about asking one question. What if? What if society looked like this? What if we had a technology that did that? With that one question, we can ask things like, what if we lived in a world without gender? That one's from Ursula Le Guin's book, Left Hand of Darkness. Or, what if an omnipresent, all-seeing government had complete control of every aspect of our lives and even our thoughts? You might know that one from George Orwell's 1984. These questions can be utopian ideals or cautionary dystopian tales. So sci-fi is way more than laser battles and lightsabers. It's how writers can paint a picture of different ways that we can live, no matter how out there they might seem. It's thought experiments in the form of stories, where characters are thrown into our lofty philosophical ideals and made to deal with the consequences. I first got into sci-fi as a teenager when I read Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy. When I was a kid, I thought these books were about some other kids who travelled between different universes fighting evil. Rereading them as an adult, it is a searing critique of the Catholic Church and organised religion in general. The books are an inversion of Paradise Lost, but with more Zeppelins. After that, I read Dune, Frank Herbert's book, which Star Wars borrows heavily from. Again, on the surface, this is a book about a prodigal son who eats a bunch of desert drugs, learns to see the future, and becomes a godlike freedom fighter. But when you look closer, that same novel is about the delicate ecological balance that the planet, 
Dune requires to produce spice, those desert drugs I mentioned, which, as well as being central to the planet's people's culture, also happen to be necessary for space travel and trade. This is a quote from a character in that book. Men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their plane. You cannot go on forever stealing what you need without regard to those who come after. This book was published in 1965. That was revolutionary at the time. Ecologists weren't even always being taken seriously in scientific circles. And here was this pretty popular book dealing with overzealous extraction of a finite, precious resource. I could go on. It also deals with the dangers of making a godlike figure out of a revolutionary fighter. It's truly a radical work on a grand scale. This show's very much on the left, so I've got to mention The Expanse. That's a current show which I've been watching recently, and in my opinion, it's one of the best examples of sci-fi's ability to critique imperialism and class warfare. It's set in a near-future solar system where the asteroid belt has been colonized and the workers who are born, live, work and die in the belt, belters, are physiologically and culturally different to people who live with gravity on Earth and Mars. They even speak in this belter creole, a patois of various Earth languages. Oye, belter larder, listen up. This is your captain. And this is your ship. This is The main characters in this show are firmly blue-collar spacers. They start out hauling ice in a beaten-up old spaceship before getting caught up in the interplanetary politics of a nationalist Mars and an imperialist Earth. And speaking of imperialism, Star Trek... I was watching The Next Generation when I had the idea for this episode, and if you're not familiar with Star Trek, it's mostly space socialists riding around in a big ship claiming that their prime directive is not to interfere in other civilizations and then going ahead and interfering in other civilizations. Despite not always hitting that anti-imperialist nail on the head, Star Trek was always incredibly progressive for its time. It's often credited with having the first interracial kiss on primetime TV, for example. Not strictly true, but it's credited with it. It is kind of hacky sometimes. Strike a ball against exploitation! Yeah. Are you with me? Agit prop aside, its depiction of a society without money was, and still is in many ways, kind of groundbreaking. my money, Jake. If you want to bid at the auction, use your own money. I'm human. I don't have any money. It's not my fault your species decided to abandon currency-based economics in favor of some philosophy of self-enhancement. Hey, watch it. There's nothing wrong with our philosophy. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. What does that mean exactly? It means... It means we don't need money. So Star Trek is set in a post-scarcity society. And post-scarcity is what I'll be talking to author and journalist Cory Doctorow about very soon. I'm also talking to Nalo Hopkinson. She's a Jamaican-born Canadian-Caribbean science fiction writer, and the work she does is often called Afrofuturism. We're under siege, and we have been since the Mafia began, since African slavery began. And so imagining a future where we might have the same kind of agency in different ways, where when my brother goes out, I have a reasonable expectation he might come back, is a radical act. Then I'm talking to Batia Weinbaum, the editor of FemSpec. That's an academic journal about feminism in speculative fiction. She helps me chart the history of feminism and gender in sci-fi. I think people were trying to show how sexist the society we live in was at that time. So the women who were writing those books were trying to imagine scenes in which women had power and overturning one by one the barriers that still existed in women's lives. But first, how science fiction can help end world hunger or something like that. We're talking post-scarcity, the notion that we can all live in abundance. Fully automated luxury communism with Cory Doctorow after this.
You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. Post-scarcity is a theoretical future situation where technology means that everyone has enough. In Star Trek, you see this in the form of replicators. There's one in every room. You just ask it for whatever you want. Tea or grey, hot. And then it appears. Ian M. Banks wrote a series set in a society called The Culture. In these far future books, humans have been so altered that they don't need to worry about disease, and all government and governing is done by colossal, benevolent AIs. Humans can choose to work, if that's how they find their satisfaction, or they can choose to party and do a bunch of drugs. The books show them doing both. But these are all super far future depictions of post-scarcity. Cory Doctorow wrote a book set in a post-scarcity society in the very near future. In fact, it starts off right where I am, in Toronto. It's called Walk Away, and it's a really fascinating piece of philosophical writing. It actually made me rethink how we look at the concepts of scarcity and abundance. So I wanted to start off by asking Corey why science fiction is how he chooses to explore his ideas. You know, on the one hand, there's this variously attributed quote that it's easier to imagine the end of the human race than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Science fiction finds it actually pretty straightforward to imagine the end of capitalism. I often think of of science fiction as being in direct opposition to Margaret Thatcher's edict that there is no alternative, not merely because I disagree with her, but because I can't imagine something more antithetical to the method of science fiction than to presume that no alternative is possible, right? That there's such enormous path dependency that uh, we are in some sort of state of inevitability that we can't escape from. It's so fatalistic, really. And there's really no reason to think so, right? You know, if, uh, one of the great things about science fiction is you can put yourself in the perspective of a notional Martian looking through a telescope and ask yourself whether what we're doing makes sense. Do these things that we group together belong together? Is there a reason to be pro-gun and anti-abortion? <laughs> you know, you don't have to be on <laughs> Mars to understand that those two positions are not obviously connected to one another, that there's some lurking contradictions sitting underneath them. And science fiction is great at making us confront the contingency of the things we think of as universal, absolute, and foreordained, makes us understand that there is an alternative. And then science fiction is also a very powerful literature particularly and obviously for talking about the relationship of technology to human civilization. And, you know, those are questions that we can ask ourselves with science fiction in a way that puts a lot of blood and sinew into what can otherwise be an extremely dry and theoretical argument. It's a bit like the architect's rendering of a building before it's built that lets you fly through the building. And obviously flying through a virtual rendering of a building is nothing like being in the building when it's built, but it's a lot more like being in the building than your just raw imagination of what it might be like. It really helps you understand what you might end up in. In the words of Daniel Dennett, it's a an intuition pump. The mental rehearsal of encounters with technology and the ways that it changes our social round are a way for us to anticipate before we are in extremis, right? Before we have an argument, before we have a crisis, to anticipate how we might react, what a good reaction might be, and what a bad reaction might be. And to use that rehearsal the same way that we use a fire drill as a rehearsal, so that when you wake up and your room is full of smoke, you don't have to rely on your rational process to guide you to the fire exit. You already have a rehearsed response that you have consciously plotted ahead of time that you can lean on. I guess one of those rehearsals is uh, 
your book, Walk Away, which is kind of the reason I wanted to speak to you, because I think quite a common trope in science fiction is the notion of a post-scarcity society. And I've got to admit, before I read Walk Away, I was thinking of post-scarcity very much in the Star Trek, Ian e M. Banks culture kind of way, where it was in the future and post-scarcity means infinite of everything. And it seemed like something that would be awesome and lovely, but really far off in the future. And then I read Walk Away and I sort of thought, hang on, this is like a roadmap to be able to do this with, instead of infinite, just enough. Well, abundance is a really curious phenomenon, right? Because it's so contingent. What can feel like a lot the first time you encounter it can feel like very little in retrospect. Before we had modern weaving techniques, two suits of clothes were a lot and abundance was three. You know, that was unthinkable abundance for many people was three sets of clothes. And so the contingency of abundance is the combination of, I think, three things. One is what we want. One is what we can make. And one is how well we can allocate what we've made. The capitalist scheme for allocation, the private property scheme for allocation, is posed as a luxury, but often ends up becoming a burden. So, you know, in this desk drawer beside me here, I have a drill. And I have a drill because I live in a modest single family home. And about once a month, I need to make a hole in a wall somewhere. And it is not worth the money to buy a good drill. And so there's really only two kinds of drills in the market. There's good drills and there's my drill. And my drill <laughs> is the minimum viable drill. It is a small <laughs> miracle that this drill does not explode and shower me with white hot shrapnel every time I use it. And it occupies some valuable desk drawer space. And my neighbors are all similarly situated, right? Nobody around here, maybe with the exception of a couple of um, you know woodworker hobbyists, needs a good drill. So collectively, we've all stuck a bad drill in a drawer. Uh, just like a lot of us have stuck a bad lawnmower in our garage and a lot of other things that, that in an ideal world, we would much prefer to not have to own. Now, you know, Davos has this great reset model to solve this problem, which is that we can rent it all. We can become tenants, not just of our homes, but of everything that is in our homes. And we can pay a rentier for everything and they can, you know, arbitrarily raise the rent and evict us from our drill when they decide that we haven't been a good drill steward. But there's another model of this, a model that technology enables just as surely as it enables this kind of rentierism. And that's what the, the folks from the Seriously Wrong podcast out in Vancouver call library socialism. The idea that we use the coordinative power of technology to instantiate the drill that is the best conceivable drill that we know how to make, to seed them around our community stochastically, to let anyone who needs a drill find that drill, to have the drill collect telemetry about its use so that the next drill that's instantiated can be better based on the telemetry from this one, to design it so that it gracefully decomposes back into the material stream so that it can be turned into that next drill, right? That is a completely different way of orienting our productive capacity. And that gives us an abundance that I think, if it's not unlimited, it's as close to unlimited as makes no never mind. We could have collective ownership of our necessities and produce a kind of vision of circulating abundance that beggars the, the most exotic dreams of, you know, pharaohs and sultans as to what a luxurious life might look like. I want to kind of paint the picture for the listener here, because I imagine a lot of them won't have read this book. But essentially, the, the sort of basic premise of the book is that the 1% own pretty much everything, and most people don't work and are on welfare, I think. It's not really made too specific at the start of the book. And then our characters go walk away, which means that they leave the capitalist society to go out into the great climate change ravaged wastelands of Canada and live a kind of anarcho-socialist life, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Yeah. They use stolen code and drones to survey the wreckage of brownfield sites to figure out what they can salvage. And then they use software to figure out how to assemble that into giant, fully automated luxury communist resorts 
that sort of run themselves. And then if some rich weirdo decides that the poison dirt that they built their luxury resort on is his poison dirt and kicks them out, they know that there's as much poison dirt as they could possibly need. And they find some other poison dirt and they get some drones to find some more salvage and they build another fully automated luxury communist resort. And they do that several times. Um, yeah. That was kind of what grabbed me was that you can look at post-scarcity as something that's not achievable for us in the near future, but you really made it seem achievable. I guess one thing that a lot of people listening will be thinking is that there are selfish assholes in the world. And there was another quote that I wrote this one down because I wanted to get into it. In theory, it doesn't work at all. In theory, we're selfish assholes. This stuff only works in practice. Yeah. I just want to know what you were thinking of when you wrote that down. Because the book's theory. Right. What kind of piece of human nature were you trying to dig into with that? I was actually quoting Jimmy Wales. That's what Jimmy oh. Wales says about Wikipedia. In theory, it's a disaster. It only works in practice. And you know, without wanting to be too wishy-washy or mushy, oftentimes in situations that are grounded in love, it does only work in practice, Right. You have to forgive people. You have to make room for them. You have to back down even when you're right. You have to establish kind of a bilateral arrangement that is grounded much more in to each according to their own need and from each according to their ability than what's fair or just or right or equitable. And, you know, it doesn't work in theory. You know, Yochai Benkler is a great thinker on technology and politics uh, at Yale, he has this lovely speech where he talks about homo economicus and neoclassicals. And he says, you know, the people who purport to believe in selfishness above all, and that selfishness produces optimal outcomes and that everyone is intrinsically selfish, you know, you can't get the selfishness out of us with norms. It's stockbrokers. If you go down to Wall Street, and you go to the little parks in Wall Street where the stockbrokers take their kids. You will hear those stockbrokers standing on the edge of the park going, Timmy, share. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> yeah. you don't want to live with someone who acts like homo economicus, especially if they're four. Right? <laughs> that would be terrible. And so yeah. it doesn't work in theory. Right? But. I think that's reason to treat those theories that we have as flawed models, models like the world in a bottle that science fiction writers or doctors or that other people who want to understand some aspect of a complex system might build incomplete with limits and mm -hmm. edges. This next question's uh I wanted to ask this specifically because when I was reading the book, I thought um, Gordon, who is the editor of this show and usually the host, he was raised Catholic and it comes up in his interviews from time to time. And they kind of, the whole society functions on the basis that people are willing to do work for the sake of doing work because things need to be done and they're not supposed to keep score. There's no competition. And you compared the measuring of how much work you've done to Catholic guilt. And I thought that was such a good way to put it. It's like, we're not supposed to think about this, but we kind of do. And it does help us get stuff done. Like, I wanted to ask you a bit about that. Like, what, what were you thinking of when you wrote that? Well, this comes a lot of, uh, up a lot in parenting. Uh, and I think I was probably thinking about parenting because I wrote that book in 2016. I guess my kid had been housebroken for a while. But, you know, there's <laughs> kind of two schools of thought in teaching your kid not to craft themselves. One is that you... Um, Show them how to use the toilet. You uh, help them by spotting the signs of when they want to use the toilet. You bring them to the toilet. You bring them back. And you rely on the intrinsic benefit of not being smeared in your own feces to motivate your kid to go to the toilet, right? That's what we do with our kid. And there's another version, which is that you give them stars and you have a chart and maybe you give them a prize if they can go a week without crapping themselves. And that works too. In fact, it probably works faster. Arguably it does. But there's a school of thought that I subscribe to, the kind of Adlerian child-rearing thought, that says that if um, you teach your kids that something that is intrinsically valuable should only be done because of some extrinsic reward, that the intrinsic value is eclipsed, right? It's crowded out. And there's some like very heartbreaking experiments with this where 
you know, they take kids who like to draw from a class and they divide them into a control group and an experimental arm. And then they take the experimental arm and they say, we're going to give you a sticker or whatever, or candy bar every time you, you draw. And those kids stop drawing after a while. They only draw if you give them a candy bar. Whereas the kids who are drawing because of the innate satisfaction they get from it, they draw on and on. And so the question this raises is like, how does this relate to the different motivators that we get for work? So there's a character in that book who's a mathematician who says that, that she does math because she can't stop and that what a job creator is, is someone who's figured out how to make her do math because she must instead of because <laughs> she can't stop. And she doesn't want to have a job creator in her life. She wants to keep doing math because it's her passion. And it's harder to get people to do stuff because it's their passion. But they do it better and they do it longer and they stay after hours and they do it when the conditions are suboptimal. And so the people in this book, they do worry that they're not keeping up with the rest of the people. And they also find themselves looking over their shoulders and wondering if other people are doing as much work as they are and whether they're, you know, being unduly burdened by others. And it's not that we will ever stop having those thoughts. It's what you do with those thoughts that matters. You know, comparison is the thief of joy. And, you know, we have a system that is set up to try and inhabit this contradiction, and it does it very badly, where we do ask people to do their job because of the pride of work. And then we also tell them that they can be made redundant or have poor working conditions imposed on them or forced back into work under unsafe conditions. And it's come up a lot during the pandemic because their employer has no reciprocal obligation to them and because they are market actors in a market. And, you know, if you, if you got made redundant from the steelworks, learn to code. It wasn't your boss's job to make sure that you had a, had a, a reliable source of income forever. And, you know, it's fraying at the edges. Like we're, we're running out of credibility for that contradiction. And the walkways in the story, they lean into one side of it. They lean into the idea that it is going to be intrinsically motivated. One area that when I started reading that I had fairly concretely in my mind that could ne we could never be post-scarcity is time and human life. Like those things are finite. And then it gets to, I think it's the first sex scene in the book. And I normally find sex scenes incredibly cringy in all literature. <laughs> but I found this one really interesting because you kind of took a post-scarcity approach to the time they spent having sex. And I wanted to talk about time and death from a post-scarcity perspective, because at one point they do end up curing death in a way. And I want to know what you think a society looks like where we no longer have to think about how much time we have left on the planet. Well, time is very elastic. You know, in the same way that we can make things more efficiently out of the same materials, we have a lot more time than we think we do. And the sex scene that you reference, it's not a scene that takes place in the context of this technological revelation that allows them to, at least in some sense, infinitely prolong their lives. It's in the context of a, a, a social change, a change in which labor has been largely automated. And while there are times when they're very busy, right, when they, when, someone comes along and takes away their home and they have to walk a couple of kilometers down the road and build another one. And they're all busy for six months. The rest of the time, they're really not. And they have a lot of time to think about what they want to do. And this character who is becoming accustomed to life there realizes that he is about to have an intimate sexual moment with someone. And that the thing that distinguishes it from all the other ones is not just that this is the first time he's done it with this new lover, but that he's never had a moment like this in which he didn't have something that he had to do in the future that required him to stop. Apart from running out of food, water, and needing toilet breaks, they could stay there forever. And that revelation changes the intimacy of the moment 
in a way that doesn't make it less urgent. I think it's a very urgent sex scene, right? They are urgently engaged with one another in that very hormonal mm -hmm. way, but it makes it less fraught. It makes it more, um, more like you would hope that love would be. Yeah. It was a kind of beautiful scene, I've got to admit. And I'm someone who, maybe it's my like awkward Britishness, but generally I kind of like hide behind my fingers at sex scenes in books because they're almost uniformly terrible. Yeah, <laughs> my, my wife is a Londoner and she hates when I write sex scenes because she feels the same way. And also she worries <laughs> that uh, people will think that they're based on our own uh, love life. And so now for avoidance of doubt, I can tell everyone listening, this has nothing to do with, with my, my wife's <laughs> and my intimate relations with one another. Of which we must have had at least once because we have a 13-year-old. We've established <laughs> As awesome a blueprint as this book is, it still does rely on huge advances in technology. But I kind of want to come back to that quote where there's always enough depending on how you look at it. And I read that and I thought, you know, we, we do have enough for everyone on the planet right now. It's just poorly distributed. So I guess the question I want to ask is, how would we achieve this kind of post-scarcity society right now? What would be the next steps to try and move the world forward towards having abundance? I have a lot of time for science. I think that our material science is chugging along, doing stuff that's amazing. There was just an incredible paper in the uh, Journal of the Society of Chemical Engineers, American Society of Chemical Engineers, on modeling out new production models based on what we've learned from mRNA vaccine production. And they concluded that an mRNA vaccine facility can be 99.9% .9 smaller than a conventional vaccine facility. It will cost 99.7% less than a conventional facility, and that you can retool the line to make a new vaccine 1,000% faster than you can with a traditional vaccine facility. And that if you were to take one closet in an existing conventional vaccine facility and install a five-liter bioreactor, that in the course of a year, the vaccine doses that emerge from that closet would outnumber the vaccine doses emerging from the rest of the factory. That for a $20 million capital investment and $100 million running operating cost per annum, you can produce a billion doses of vaccine. That's 12 cents a dose in the first year, 10 cents a dose in the years to come. Science is fucking amazing, right? We can make a lot more with what we have. So much more with what we have. So much more, right? Yeah, I, I'm okay with like the idea that we live on a finite earth and we should think about the earth as finite, but we are so in advance of what we need to do before we have to think about degrowth and, you know, abandon the Promethean vision of the left which was not that someday we'll make every lord live like a peasant. It was that someday every peasant can live like a lord. That was Cory Doctorow, journalist and science fiction author. The book we were talking about is called Walk Away, but he's also written a ton of other books, including his new book, Attack Surface. We'll put links to Cory's work in the show notes. When you're imagining different futures, you have to think about the writer's lens. Who is doing the imagining, and who are they imagining a better future for? Sci-fi has historically been pretty white, and that means the stories are pretty white. They're written from that perspective. But there is a tectonic shift happening in sci-fi publishing. There are a raft of black authors writing books that imagine different worlds and futures that aren't centered on white people, that aren't Eurocentric. And this lens is called Afrofuturism, or African futurism, depending on who you ask and who's doing the writing. This isn't some small niche of publishing. N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy just got acquired by Sony to be adapted to screen in a seven-figure deal. Black Panther made this stuff mainstream. The woman who started the online community for Afrofuturism, Alondra Nelson, even serves in Biden's cabinet. So, I got in touch with Nalo Hopkinson. She's a sci-fi author who was born in Jamaica before moving around the Caribbean as a kid and then eventually settling in Canada. She currently lives in California, but she's about to move to B.C., I was especially interested in Nala's work because, self-indulgently, her book, Brown Girl in the Ring, is set around the part of Toronto where I live. 
It's this visceral depiction of Caribbean magical realism with the characters invoking gods in gory rituals, some of which take part in this crematorium by the farm I walk past most days. If I walk past there at night now, I can't help but imagine the bloody chicken sacrifice and the chanting that is in one chapter of the book. Yeah, I I lived pretty close to there too. And uh, you're not the only person to have that reaction. (laughs) My friend Shakura Saida, who is a blues singer who actually plays Mami in um, the film inspired by Brown Girl in the Ring. She lived walking distance from there and when she first read the novel, phoned me. And at that time, there were still answering machines. And she left this message on my answer phone about how she could never go back to that cemetery again because, damn it, it was haunted now. (laughs) As well as being this fantastical magic-led story, it's also set in a very science fiction, post-apocalyptic Toronto. The city has been abandoned by any kind of government, with the people left behind scraping an existence out of crime-ridden ruins, basically. So with these two sides to it, I wanted to ask Nalo how she would categorize her work. I'm very clear that what I write is part of a number of traditions of the literature of the fantastic. I call it what I want to, depending on who I'm talking to. People say speculative fiction, and I say, okay, sure, that is a broader umbrella term. But I find that in academe, it's also what academics tend to call it to try and make it sound respectable. But though I'm employed in academe right now, I'm an artist and contemporary art has, to my eye, little to do with respectability. Like it's not overly concerned with it. In a crowd of science fiction and fantasy people, I'll say I write science fiction and fantasy. People bring up Afrofuturism. And that to me is not a genre. It's a lens. There's beginning to be this idea out in the world that if a black person writes science fiction, you call it Afrofuturism. And why? <laughs> the skin tone has very little to do with, <laughs> with the genre. But using the critical lens of Afrofuturism to look at what certain writers are doing, not all of them of African descent, is very, very useful. To be honest, I think you've answered exactly what, what I wanted to dig into, which is that the idea of Afrofuturism or African futurism is not necessarily a genre. It's a lack of, if you're going to call it Afrofuturism, you should call the other science fiction white futurism or Eurofuturism, I guess. And and we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess what I wanted to dig into is the idea that Afrofuturism is grounding your work in you as a black woman's lived experience and heritage, right? Is that Would that be a correct way of saying it? I don't know. And there's an inside and an outside here. So when I first heard the term Afrofuturism, it took my breath away because it gave me a mailbox. You see what I mean? It gave me an umbrella. And it, gave, it told me that I wasn't alone, which I sort of knew. And it told me that there were people with whom I could have conversations that I wouldn't have to start from Racism 101. Right. Uh, And it told me that there were other people, many of them of African descent, who were interested in this type of approach as much as I was. And the term is coined by a white critic, by Mark Derry. But it it, it gave me a place, not the only place, uh, but gave me a place to find peers and analysis and that kind of thing. From the outside, what happens is it, 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 people start to try and make it rigid and to codify it in a way that I think limits it and that focuses on blackness rather than anti-racism. <laughs> and a lot of Afrofuturist works are looking to center Africanness rather than it being only reactionary to anti-Black racism. So I can write whole worlds where we haven't forgotten our history, but the world is run mostly by people of African descent. And you can have a very different set of everything. World building is different. Language is different. Everything is different. Yeah. I, I read a quote from you from another interview. The quote was, 
it is a radical act for black people to imagine having a future. And I wondered if you could (laughs) explain, I wondered (laughs) if you could explain that for me. We're under siege and we have been since the Mafia began, since African slavery began. We're not the only ones under siege, but there is still a project of stamping us out, essentially. And you see that enacted, particularly here in the US, but it happens, very much happens in Canada as well. And so imagining a future where we might have the same kind of access, where we might have agency in different ways, where when my brother goes out for a walk, I have a reasonable expectation he might come back, right? Is is a radical act. And writer Walter Mosley has said that if you want to make a better world, you need to first be able to imagine it. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but he was speaking specifically to people who call science fiction escapism. And he said, particularly coming from Black communities, in order to get to that better world, we need to be able to imagine it. So that's part of it. Part of it is shit is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is why I love it. I think you you kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit there, because I think science fiction can be escapism. And there's a lot of there is a lot of bad science fiction, if we're being honest yeah. with ourselves. And I read a lot of it. And it's like, you know, dudes in space having laser fights. And that's kind of escapism. Pew, but then, pew. yeah. <laughs> But then it's also like that escapism can also be using your or imagination or the writer's imagination to imagine a better world. And I just think that's so important for pretty much anyone who isn't a cis, het, white male, which I am one, but I still love science fiction because I think mm-hmm. it helps us imagine these better worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important for everyone. It's just more urgent. For, for some, but it's important for everyone. And, you know, they say the rising tide lifts all boats. A better world for us is a better world for everyone. And a lot of the cishet white folks in science fiction know this. There's a strong strain that really wishes we would get the politics out of their science fiction, but it's always been there. It's always been there. Even the 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 most simplistic thin storytelling, science fiction and fantasy, you can imagine, will usually have some discussion of power differences, class differences, uh, of the underdog, you know, winning the day, something. It's built into the genre. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so I guess what I'm coming towards here is that representation is important. And maybe it's a hacky and tired question, but why is, if we can use that term, Afrofuturism, why is it important? I learned about the term first when I discovered the Afrofuturism listserv created by Alondra Nelson, who would become my friend and who is now uh, part of Biden's new cabinet. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. But she created the Afrofuturism listserv and the sense of joy and celebration in the people meeting to talk because this was our stuff we didn't have to translate. We could argue, wow, did we argue, but we didn't have to translate (laughs) to each other. (laughs) And we had read many of the same texts or uh, had had not always the same analysis, but we could have discussions that went beyond, like I said, racism 101. That's part of why it's important. It's important because why the hell not? Like, why shouldn't people like me be on the page, you know, middle-aged, queer, fat, black women, immigrants. Why shouldn't we be on the page in the stories I love to watch and read? Why shouldn't everybody? We call it diversity, which seems to hint at difference, but really it means everybody. Why shouldn't all those stories be there? They get richer and not just a North American or Western tropes of storytelling I've been watching Korean and Chinese science fiction programs and fantasy programs. And there's a whole nother set of cultural richness that I would not have otherwise. And it just feels, if you've never had it and you finally get it and 
you're not totally closed off. I think it, it tends to feel like, whoa, the, everybody's here. There's all these cool stories, right? <laughs> How can more stories be a bad thing? How can more people being represented be a bad thing? This is kind of something I also wanted to ask you about is science fiction and publishing more, more broadly has historically been, like many fields, pretty white and male dominated. And that has led to science fiction being pretty white and male dominated. But it does feel like that might be changing a little bit. Is that true? Or am I just looking at, the, at it from the outside because I've seen a few notable exceptions? Crossing my arthritic fingers, I have to do it manually now. I can't just cross <laughs> them. But I, I think it is changing. And the thing is, is that change probably started a while ago. Publishing has been way more woman-centric. A lot of the editors are female. And I don't think that people really took note of that change. And, you know, queer people were always there, everywhere were always there. So that's already happening. But it's more overt and there are more people who, who are, are, you know, becoming editors, becoming publishers. And there does seem to, since the Black Lives Matter protests last year and the year before, there does seem to be either a will to change in publishing or a will to be seen to change. The second one's a bit problematic because it leads to tokenism. But I'm seeing more and more projects by a wider and wider range of people. I'm being asked to consider writing things that I didn't think I ever would be. And so, yes, uh, I hope I hope it's not just a blip. I hope it just keeps going up and up and up because the work is wonderful. That gives me hope too. I guess we, we, you touched on this a little earlier in the interview. You sort of mentioned that uh, perhaps science fiction hasn't always been taken seriously in academia. Is it being taken more seriously now than it used to be? Or is it still kind of thought of as something frivolous? I think it very much is being taken more seriously, particularly in the sort of critical theory side of things, where you now have science fiction studies. And that's not being laughed at. It used to be that I remember going to an academic fantasy conference years and years ago, and it seemed to be that there were a lot of writers of the genre there and a lot of academics who were medievalists, who were fantasy scholars on the side, but in order to you know, make their way and have their careers, had to have a broader. I think that is less so, and I'm seeing it being used and referred to more overtly in the other disciplines. And how many scientists do you know who've been inspired by science fiction? There's a ton of them. So that love is there too. Where it's still a struggle is in creative writing departments, where students are sometimes flat out told they can't write it. That was definitely the case many, many years ago. I'm about to go work in this department, so you know it's changed. <laughs> but UBC in their creative writing program flat out said, it's commercial, non-literary, and formulaic. They do not in any way believe that anymore at all. <laughs> but a lot of creative writing departments in North America specifically still want to distance themselves from it. That was Nalo Hopkinson science fiction author, doctor of letters, and a professor of creative writing at U of California, Riverside. She's about to join the School of Creative Writing at UBC. I read her book, Brown Girl in the Ring, but she's put out loads of great work. Nalo herself recommends you read Sister Mine. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Nalo was saying that science fiction has struggled to be taken seriously by universities. But even within the genre itself, there's an important thread that has had to fight to have its voice heard. It's one of the longest-running themes in science fiction, but it's still depressingly unsurprising that it was squeezed out. Feminism. So sci-fi has always been about giving voice and hope to the marginalised, but there's also been this kind of long-running divide in the genre between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. 
Hard sci-fi focuses mainly on the technology. It's world-building without much regard for the characters in it, the idea being that the technologies imagined have some basis in reality. They could be something that at some point really exists. Then there's what's known as soft science fiction. This centers the people more and how those technologies or societies might affect them without focusing too much on being realistic. You could call Nalo's work soft sci-fi. I think it's kind of an old-fashioned, condescending, patriarchal approach to use those terms, though. You can't do a good job of examining future technologies, really, without imagining how they affect societies. And right from the start of science fiction, women have been imagining societies that are better for them, less patriarchal, even fully matriarchal. So to help me chart the history of feminism in science fiction, I called up Batia Weinbaum. She's the editor of FemSpec, the academic journal of feminist speculative fiction. I reached her in her cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I started by asking why FemSpec was necessary in the first place. This first article that I wrote about Leslie F. Stone, I had submitted to one of the major genre journals, Science Fiction Studies, and it came back with this, you know, when you submit to an academic journal, you get comments. And you have to revise with the comments in order to get accepted to the journal. And the comments that I got showed a lack of awareness of what, for example, radical feminism was. And they said that this author was a radical feminist. And somehow I should say that in the article. Well, she wasn't a radical feminist. She was from the 20s and 30s before radical feminism had even existed as a movement. And, and she even the writing on the in the content wasn't radical feminist either. So a bunch of us were discussing that without knowledge of feminism in the editorial boards of the genre journals, the comments that we got as a sieve that we had to jump through were making our articles less feminist than we wanted them to be. And so we decided to start our own journal. And then we decided to include creative work because people had the same experience with creative work as well. I did actually want to kind of help you help me get a sense of kind of the history of the feminist thread in science fiction. Where does this start? Where does feminism in science fiction, where's that seed planted? Where does it begin? Well, there's some people who think that the woman, uh, Mary Shelley, who wrote uh, Frankenstein was the first originator of science fiction. But then, of course, she was ignored as a science fiction writer. But definitely, she was a science fiction writer. She was talking about using a machine to invent a man, right? Scientific creation of a person. So to feminists, she's considered the originator of science fiction. But you have to remember that we had a huge movement to get women the vote. And the women got the vote in the 20s. And when women got the vote, women also got into the workplace. And there was a lot being questioned in the first part of the century. And so there were women and men questioning in science fiction that was reflecting what was going on in society, gender roles. So you can find a lot of stories that do criticize or question gender roles. But then you had the 30s come along when what happened was most of the women were cast out and jobs went to men if there were any jobs at all. And so the science fiction started to reflect the male dominance. And, and the, there was the famous stories about women who had to write under male names. And then when the editors of the pulp magazines found out that they were women, they didn't want to publish their stories anymore. Another reason it got squeezed out was because of what was happening in the Europe, because a lot of the great dictator stories started to replace the stories that were questioning gender because the Aryan race became the thing to look at. And a lot of the stories in science fiction started to reflect the war situation. And then you had the 40s and you had the atomic bomb drop. And so what people started to look at changed. And you have an author like Judith Merrill who made a connection between gender and the nuclear war and the atomic bomb. She wrote that famous story that only a mother, I think it was in 46 or 48. And she's called the originator of soft, sci-fi, even though people had been looking at relationships earlier, but she's called the originator of the soft sci-fi genre. And she talked about a mother who gave birth and her baby was deformed, but only a mother would look at her baby and not realize it was deformed, but the child was deformed because of the nuclear fallout and, and the radiation that it affected the child. So she started to put science together with 
gender. And then there was Marion Zimmer Bradley, who doesn't discuss herself as a feminist ever, but she wrote a lot of stories in the 50s and 60s, which were um, those of us who look at her work consider it feminist, but she doesn't adopt that label herself. Uh, she wrote a, a famous story where a woman is on an air on a rocket ship and they stop on a planet and um, then she gets pregnant with a local alien wind that blows itself into her and then she gets left on the planet. So she's there, the mother of an alien. And then of course in the 70s you had just an explosion because a lot of people, a lot of women were looking for alternatives. You know, well, we don't think we just want a bigger piece of the pie that's here. We want to really radically restructure the pie. And so you had a lot of feminist utopian novels, which were written with women being the ones who survived the Holocaust when, you know, males start to die because of a disease or something, which actually that was a theme that was very prominent in the 20s and 30s, too, is if some virus happens and all the males die out, and then the women are the only one left on the planet. I guess there's always the question of like, is it the art that's driving the change or is the art reflecting the change? Do you think that these novels helped progress the feminist agenda? I do. I mean, you look at something like Star Trek, which most people's exposure to science fiction is through television and movies and not through books. So in 1968, there was a ridiculous episode called Spock's Brain, in which um, the Enterprise goes to this planet and all the women are living underground and the men are running around wildly and you know aren't able to come underground where it was all technologically controlled. But they needed Spock's brain because they needed to put it into the computer. They needed the, the male brain to be the uh, controller to keep their environment going. And all the women were like in you know, disco boots and high heels, you know, and <laughs> mini skirts and poofed hair, and oh, yeah. they were stupid. And the m- more the brain left, the stupider they got. So that was the male domin- female dominated planet in 1968. By 1988, you had uh, a female dominated planet called Angel One, in which the Enterprise landed, and there was a council of women. And every time they made a decision, they went away into a separate room and discussed and came to consensus. And then one of them came back to tell the answer to the enterprise about what they had decided. And that was a direct reflection of the women's movement. However, we also have somebody working on our journal now, Jenny Baker, and she's like 23 or 24. Her parents were Trekkies. She grew up watching these episodes, right? So she was very much influenced by the radical critique of gender roles that were in those shows, which might have been reflecting changes at the time, but those reflections of changes at the time went on to then influence her to have very radical ideas. So when she came of age at 20, she was much more radical in her ideas than when I came of age. I mean, I was like a conservative kid from the Midwest. So when things reflect the times, they also become like time bombs that go into the future and continue to impact whoever gets in contact with them. And they also go out and impact the rest of the world outside of the United States, outside of the moment that they're reflecting. Something I always find in science fiction is that you get kind of utopia where we show how great a world could be if we lived in this kind of world. And when we're talking about gender ideas, I'm thinking of Ian M. Banks, the culture series, who he's not an explicitly feminist writer. He doesn't explicitly explore gender roles, but it is a universe where people can change gender at will. And that means you have some characters that you encounter when they're both a man and a woman, which I thought was super interesting. But then you also have dystopias and, you know, the most obvious version of a dystopia when we're talking about feminism is Margaret Atwood and A Handmaid's Tale. You know, this land that I'm living on is called Handmaid's Gate. It's inspired by the movie that her was based on her novel, and uh, anyone who comes through the gate onto this land is escaping the patriarchy. <laughs> That's the theory of this land. Uh, but um, no, I think she's fantastic. I have a lot of respect for her. Uh, and one of the things I like about what she has said is that everything that's in The Handmaid's Tale is based on reality. Every detail in there is something that she saw or read about. She saw a newspaper article. And so nothing, it's not a totally fictionalized world. It's a world that's inspired by reality. 
And that's why it's so creepy. That's why it's so powerful is that it's not hard to imagine. Even the escaping into Canada, you know, it's not so hard to imagine because it's based so closely on reality. That was Dr. Bathia Weinbaum, founder and editor of the journal Femspec, a feminist journal focused on science fiction and fantasy. We'll put links to that and Bathia's work in the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is myself, Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. The editor is Gordon Katick. Our research assistants are David Moscrop and Addie Susnick. As always, our theme song and outro were composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic design is by Dakota Coop. You can send us feedback, email the show dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or tweet at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media and is backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. Plus, we're supported by our generous patrons. If you're not one of them already, join us and join them. Go to patreon.com slash dartsandletters. Patrons get content today early as well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back and Gordon will be back next Friday. <laughs>